Jason Modulin, Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Thank you for joining the program here today. Appreciate it. And as we kind of wind down our 2020, I guess I was going to say 2021, but as we wind down 2020, thought it'd be a good idea to bring on Mr. Modulin to find out a little bit about his perspective, what he's seen, and also what we're going to look at for 2021. They just did a study, and we want to get to that as well. But first off, how are you doing today? And uh, let's start off with that, I guess. How's life treating you? I'm good, Jason. Thank you very much, and uh, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to your listeners. So what is the organization that you're a part of? It's the T- Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Did I have that right? Because I'm going off memory. You did, All absolutely. Right. Yes, I'm the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Just started this year uh, in 2020 in June, uh, but we have a 90-year history uh, dating back uh, to 1930 with the North Texas Oil and Gas Association out of Wichita Falls and. We merged with another association in 2000 to become the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, and we represent over 2,600 individuals and member companies in Texas, largely focused on independent operators, uh, advancing their interest, and uh, also the standards of the oil and gas industry. You said 2,600? 2,600, yes, sir. We're, we are, uh, at last count, the largest independent uh, organization focused on upstream operators, and uh, so so we have a big uh, mantle uh, and mission to fill. That is incredible. And you, you said just in Texas. Yes, sir. That is absolutely incredible to think about the supply chain and the economy and just communities. 2,600 businesses, holy smokes, that's a lot. My goodness. Um that's, that's just quite a supply chain there. Anyway, so you guys recently just did a study. Let's talk about that. It's the uh, Texas Alliance of Energy Producers survey of more than 160 oil and gas professionals. So let's talk a little bit about what that is, what the results are, and what the tea leaves are reading for 2021, sir. So let's uh, start off with yeah, the we- methodology and just kind of, you know, how you guys came about it. Absolutely. We surveyed over 160 oil and gas professionals. Uh, We wanted to be in the field right as the election was coming to a close. So we surveyed uh, folks that were in sea level, but also down to to, um, uh, roustabout and and, and drillers. And what we found is that there's broad, cautious optimism as we're heading into 2021 uh, with recovery from covid Um, but also some of the uh, uh, potential positive signs, uh, both in the state of Texas, where we resisted a blue wave of uh, -of out-of-state environmental funding that was coming in, trying to flip a number of Texas House seats, as well as a seat on the Railroad Commission. And then hopefully all eyes are are on Georgia, where hopefully Republicans can uh, hold those two seats and prevent a Democratic majority from really giving Biden uh, and House Democrats roughshod to enact a Green New Deal. Some of the other big high takeaways out of the survey survey, 
Um, it, it's just the optimism of the industry coming back in late 2021. Uh, far and away, the respondents were positive uh, to that aspect. Uh, 2020 was a, a very tough year, seeing both uh, economic downturn, but also some contraction within the industry, but lots of positive signs as we're coming into the next year. Just kind of taking a look at a few of the bullet points here. Sorry about that. Uh, we, well, a couple of things is biggest macro level concerns, price of oil, number two, demand for oil, number three, federal over-regulation, not only regulation, but over-regulation. Those are, uh, are, are, the, are those pretty common, I guess? I know you guys are new in terms of uh, the organization, but it's a, it's a you know, conglomeration merger, if you will. I don't know how long the survey or offshoots of these types of surveys are being done. Those seem to be pretty, pretty normal concerns, but uh, the, the regulation, I, I, I guess that would, I guess 43%, probably pretty high, I would think. I don't know. I guess I'm just asking what, what your reaction is to those macro level concerns of price of oil, 59%, demand for oil and gas, 47 and federal over-regulation, 43%. I think if you had done this survey in any other year, and this is the first year of our survey to do this, uh, normally what the Alliance does is put out a monthly Texas Petro Index, which is our uh, economic scale for where the industry is, and, and we've done that for uh, going on two decades now with our executive vice president and petroleum economist, Carr Ingham, uh, again, putting out that Texas Petro Index each month. But we really wanted to see kind of where the industry was after this very tough year. And as we were seeing uh, a change uh, in administration, we wanted to get a sense of where folks were. And, and I thought what was interesting in that macro concern was demand actually being such a high concern. Certainly a year ago, uh, you wouldn't have seen um, uh, demand be the top of the ticket for producers wondering where demand was going to be going into the new year. And that's really because we're continuing to see European countries and states here in, in the United States grappling with potential lockdowns. Uh, that can dramatically decrease demand for oil and gas. But we're also seeing some bright signs overseas with India and China come back uh, uh, to the same level of demand that they had in diesel. And uh, um, there's some bright signs as well for some of the airline companies continuing to make orders for Boeing airplanes. We, we know those aren't uh, wind-powered. Uh, and so they've got to buy jet fuel, and so those are positive signs. You brought up uh, a few things that made me think of the Texas Railroad Commission stepping in and you know controlling production in the last year. There was, I think, two meetings on that, two pretty, pretty heated, uh, passionate type of uh, meetings where the commission was going to come in and either control or get involved or something like that, and um, it was the concern for demand, I guess, that triggered that. But were you guys around before then, or were you formed after that? I guess, talk nope. to me. We, Go ahead. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry if I misspoke earlier. We, we, were, we were formed as the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers in 2000. So, so oh, we've I'm been sorry. around for, for 20 years. 
um, but but our, our parent uh, uh, associations, um, uh, this organization uh, traces back 90 years, um, uh, so, so a long history in the oil field, uh, working on behalf of independent producers, um, representing their interests both in Austin and Washington, D.C., um, and then also with some cost-saving programs that we offer um, insurance lines that, that uh, allow producers to save a little money and, and keep operating. And yes, we were around during those uh, proration conversations. The alliance and its board decided to uh, come out against um, uh, the uh, proposal from Commissioner Sitton to prorate production statewide. Um, and, and really a lot of the macro concerns were that um, the number that, that, that government always lags a little bit in, in where they get it right. And the United States is, is so much different than the rest of the world. We have uh, private ownership of minerals here. Um, and that's really how those private contracts result in the best uh, levels of production, and, and we really saw that from producers scaling back this year. A number of our members just don't want to be in the position of coming to the Railroad Commission every month uh, with, a, with a mother may I approach, can I, can I produce a little more? And when the commission started that process in the late 20s, uh, it took about 50 years to get off that cycle. Um, so uh, there's some long memory amongst our members, and, and they didn't want to see us return to that. I think that's one of the most critical issues in oil and gas right now. I really do. Um, and you're, you know, you're kind of your, you know, Mama, can I get some more, some more business analogy is, is pretty spot on. You know, it, it really is. And there's another part of it, too, because we were paying pretty close attention to it because when that first was introduced, Mike Summers from API, he came out and right away, I, I swear, I laughed because it just seemed like when I was reading the story, the reporter didn't even finish his sentence and he's like, absolutely not. You know, it's like the knee-jerk reaction, the old school way, just all that. And then... Um, Matt Gallagher from Parsley Energy popped up on CNBC and was inviting the proration, the intervention and the little bit of control and that sort of thing. And that caught my attention because I thought that was pretty symbolic. You know, you have kind of an old school way, older gentleman with Mike Summers, and then you've got a younger uh, CEO totally going a, a different ideologic ideological approach to it. And I thought, boy, the industry is a little bit of crossroads here. And um, interesting, you guys came out and, and took a stance. That, that's, that's, that, what, did you guys discuss that? Was that at all a difficult discussion? Was there any sort of uh, uh, inner fighting or was it all pretty, pretty much what you guys thought? I, I wouldn't say it was a, it was a difficult conversation internally, um, but but there was definitely disagreement. Uh, we certainly had members that testified at that hearing that were in support of some type of limitation on production. Uh, and then we likewise had members that were just as passionate on the other side. I think the steps that the railroad commissioners took to fully vet the issue and to determine if they had the capabilities 
to do a good job um, uh, was ultimately what educated the, the rest of the industry that, that um, uh, this would be um, uh, unsuccessful if the commission were to go down that path. Um, and I, I think that's, um, that, that was a good thing, that the, the commissioners weighed uh, their options there, that they took testimony, that they took lengthy testimony. Uh, um, don't know if you tuned into that, but an uh, 11-hour hearing, um, nearly 50,000 people across the, the, the world uh, tuning in to a, a Zoom broadcast uh, by state government was, was pretty incredible to see. Um, so, so, I mean, kudos again to, to the railroad commissioners for the work that they undertook to, we believe, come to the right conclusion. Now, you can certainly pass on this next question. Uh, Senator, U.S. Senator Kramer called it a, a complex question, but a very important one. And it has to do with, you know, what we're talking about, you know, when, when government steps in and and starts, you know, doing what they do. Uh, in North Dakota, we've, we've got a little bit of a program going on to cap some wells and to stimulate a little bit of the oil and gas revenue. So it's kind of happened there. Wyoming did a rebound program. And so it's, you know, and you mentioned Texas did it for 50 years or whatever it was, the number of years you mentioned. And so it's not unusual. Um, but the reality is, is when that happens, generally governments try to centralize. And so that's where the pick, pick winners and losers and that type of stuff comes out. And then you start getting some inner fighting and this and that. The part that wasn't lost on me, and I'm very curious to know your opinion about it because of the people you represent, was the poor frack sand guys, okay? They've had to sharpen their books, their pencils now for the fifth time in the last 10 years. So they're generally one of the first ones that have to cut costs. You know, we're, I guess, technically we're in the marketing business because we're in communication. So we usually have to cut our costs pretty quick too. Um, I know I heard the truckers said, oh boy, those truckers sacrifice more than probably anybody that we know about. And so when a lot of these companies, and I think it was reported 30% is what industry was expecting uh, early part of the COVID shutdowns and this and that. And well, then um, some of these companies went bankrupt and they were asking for government intervention. So that, that to me, I thought was a little bit uh, telling of why we need to have these conversations, why people need to be accessible, and why some of the tough uh, crossroads that industry gets at at times is, is really beneficial because, you know, like I said, those poor frack sand guys, I, I, don't, I, I don't even know how they're making money anymore. So um, anyway, like I said, it's a, it's a complex question. It's a difficult question, but it's a very real one. So, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the industry is going to see some consolidation and mergers uh, uh, for quite a while, and, that, and that's both at the operator level, but then also in service companies and in some of these suppliers that uh, have relied on a robust industry, and, and unfortunately we are in contraction uh, right now, and we're going to continue to see uh, mergers where appropriate, where uh, um, investors uh, think that there's there's value and, and upswing there uh, to capture, um, and it's it, it's extremely unfortunate when we've had these advances um, in Braxton, uh, particularly in Texas, but but um, uh, formally in Wisconsin. I mean, to really uh, bring new industries to parts of, of uh, the Midwest 
uh, and south and, and take advantage of that. Stop uh, importing um, these these limited resources from from other countries and really mine it here uh, in the United States is is phenomenal. And hopefully we will get back uh, to some level of uh, of higher activity than what we're at now. But um, uh, really, until we kind of get out of this COVID funk, um, uh, we're going to be under it for a while. Are you guys going to be impacted by any of the federal lease bans that we're talking about? We've had uh, Kathleen Skama. She's the director for the uh, Western Energy Alliance. Uh, Senator Kramer. And this is just the last couple of weeks that, that this has been a really hot topic because of mostly the Western states are going to get impacted. You know, you get you go west of That's the right. Black Hills and you can't even go five feet without having federal land in some way or another, it seems like. So it, it gets pretty yeah, so, intense. Go ahead. Sorry. So Texas is, is 97% privately owned. Uh, you're like North Dakota. Um, so okay. that, will, that will insulate us somewhat uh, from some of the onshore federal regulations, but certainly if they reduce... Uh, the Gulf of Mexico and, and some of the offerings there, or limit operators from from uh, certain completion techniques, uh, that's going to have an impact on us, uh, no doubt. Uh, uh, we do anticipate we'll, uh, the losses in New Mexico will result in in some of Texas's gain, but uh, that's not a uh, that's not anything we're looking forward to. We we, we certainly um, like when both sides of the Permian Basin is going. Uh, full steam, and so are not looking forward to the days um, when some of our neighbors are experiencing uh, federal over-regulation. But um, how uh, these these lease um, uh, regulations will impact us, that's going to be largely an offshore and maybe uh, uh, running some people out of New Mexico and, and into Texas. Now, you're, you're based in Austin, your organization, and, and do you live there mostly? Yes, sir. Okay, yes. and live here in Austin. And I'm and, and I'm in Fargo, which is you know the Austin of North Dakota, or which is the Boulder of Texas. So you know you, you've you've got a lot of uh, what did what did you call it the uh, blueberry and tomato soup? I thought that was a great yes, analogy. Sir. And so um, it's it's kind of Secretary Perry's uh, uh, when, uh, Rick Perry, our former governor, when when he became uh, Energy Secretary, he he often described it as the Okay, I've met him before. He's been in North Dakota a few times. Um, yes, sir. When he was energy secretary, uh, but the the reason I bring that up is because I, I believe that when you're living in those cities, a little more day to day, and you work in the industry, you're a little more attuned to kind of some of the the vibe and the energy uh, towards oil and gas professionals, and it's 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 a different vibe. And I feel it when I go to Fort Collins. I feel it when I go to, to Boulder, Austin. I felt it when I was down there. And so that's, that's one side of it. The other side is actual regulation. So you've got the, the whole social branding that's going on, and, and we'll discuss that in a second. But right now I wanted to ask you about in Texas, are there any like uh, – regulations that we need to be aware of at a Colorado or a California or a New York style level of concern? Uh, no, uh, thankfully our legislature and, uh, um, governor Greg Abbott ha have really been, uh, forceful in their support of oil and gas. Um, 
uh, I think there will be some opportunity to be proactive this session and really look at some of these financial institutions that openly discriminate against oil and gas and really taking the fight back to them in limiting their ability to contract with state agencies and, and uh, jurisdictions of the state. Um, because really it's, it's uh, pointing out the hypocrisy if you are willing to take our deposits and those deposits are uh, raised on oil and gas um, and then turn around and, and tell us virtue signaling that you're not going to lend to oil and gas projects. That's not something that uh, we need to be supportive of. And so we're going to be actively supporting our legislature and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in efforts to really look at um, are we uh, enabling these financial institutions to go down this path by giving them a free pass. Um, thankfully, our legislature uh, a few years ago when we saw some local jurisdictions want to ban fracking and other types of completion techniques, they passed House Bill 40 that eliminated their ability to uh, regulate below ground on, on oil and gas. And so uh, they left that jurisdiction at the Texas Railroad Commission and at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality where we have great regulators in place. Um, that do a fine job and that the industry is, is supportive of. Sorry, I'm just writing down some notes here as you're talking. I hope all of the listeners are doing it as well. Um, good stuff here. And uh, not to name drop uh, here, but I, I'd like to cite some other people when we're having the conversations as well. And uh, one of the questions that um, Senator Kramer and I discussed this week was the, the disconnect that's happening. And we were talking about North Face, what's going on there. So you've got North Face, which uses petroleum products to distribute it all over the place. They arguably have got petroleum products within the, the material that uh, the jackets are made out of. And then they have an entire FR clothing line known as Bulwark. So they're reject and not. Furthermore, they're rejecting business at a time when people need business. So, we we you know we kind of talked about that a little bit. Talked a little bit about you know the um, politicians you know living in the planet of platitudes, going out there talking about banning an industry, just flat out banning an industry. Well, you know ninety three ninety six percent of of our quality of life and our lifestyles depend on it. So we. You, it's very difficult to have a conversation with someone like that because you're, you're better off talking to a brick wall. So the question is actually, how did we get here and why is there such a disconnect? Does that make sense? I, yes, it, it makes perfect sense. And I thought you had a really good show last week with Jeff Roach out of, out of Houston, really looking at uh, all the brands that are associated with VF Corporation, and, and you hit the nail on the head with, with Bulwark FR. Um, uh, interestingly enough, they have a blog post today on oil and gas being their heart and soul. So I, I thought that was interesting that um, uh, maybe they're feeling a little pressure uh, and want to make sure that they can still uh, uh, sell their, their um, uh, FREs. Uh, so, um, you know, what, what I think is is telling about some of these uh, boycott statements and things of that nature that, that they're just not going to support oil and gas is it, just the disconnect in 
and not seeing how oil and gas benefits them on a daily basis, uh, whether it's their phones and, and computers that they're utilizing uh, with, with plastics, um, but then also just electricity and heating your homes. Um, it, it's, it's much broader. And then you get into the medical community, which was so critical uh, this year and, and next year as we're rolling out uh, vaccines and, and keeping people safe. All of that PPE equipment uh, is plastic um, and, and petroleum derivative, um, not to mention that those vaccines need to be kept at a very cold temperature and distributed uh, all over the world. Um, and, and even for North Face or, or Patagonia a few years ago uh, with, with the same problem, their material is a petroleum byproduct. It, it, it's not... Uh, the, those wool socks are not being sheared from sheep. They're, they're, <laughs> it's, it, it is nylon and it is other materials uh, that uh, have been manufactured uh, with the use of petroleum. So it's just um, uh, it's frustrating to see. It, it, it's um, uh, thankful that here in Texas we are starting to increase the level of energy education in the state, uh, both with uh, elementary school kids, but but also up through high school to just bring them a sense of this is how your state uh, raises significant portions of its tax revenue, um, but this is also um, uh, a critical industry to this state, along with agriculture and, and some of our uh, aerospace uh, industries in the state, that, that it's the backbone of the state. It's how we fund higher education. It's how we fund roads and water infrastructure. Uh, there's a great museum exhibit at our Texas State History Museum all about oil and gas and the uh, innovation that has occurred here in Texas uh, with horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing has really unleashed the shale industry here in the United States and, and now in other parts of the world. So um, it's really a phenomenal story that um, is unfortunately being left out in a number of classrooms across the nation. Um, and so folks feel insulated. They don't see oil and gas on a regular basis, or when they do, they don't like parts of oil and gas, uh, and they want to reject it. And yet they miss out on all of the things in their life that are products directly from oil and gas. I'd like to know your opinion on the public perception of oil and gas. There was recently a op-ed in the Midland newspaper, and I'm not sure if the Houston Chronicle picked it up, but it was, but it was from, oh, it was one of the state uh, uh, legislators, I believe. And he basically talked about, he'd fly, I believe they flat out said, uh, big, big tobacco is that, you know, stop comparing us to big tobacco. And I know North Face said that they rejected it because of porn, alcohol, tobacco. I mean, I'm like, I'm reading that going, well, dude, you're just putting oil and gas in with the syntaxers. What's going on here? Yep. You cannot heat your homes with Marlboros, and your car does not drive on Joe Camels. This is, this is okay, like I said, you can't even have a conversation with this type of an individual because they're not dealing with logic anymore. And right. the, the CEO, to do this, from a business standpoint, 
I, I really truly have to ask, where are the shareholders? And if they're a public company, I haven't done a re- enough research, but if they're a public company or if they're getting any public dollars and they're rejecting business, I got to ask, is that acceptable in today's business now? Are we at a point now where big companies get bailed out so they can just do this? They can reject business at this level? I, it, it, I, I don't even know how to even interpret it because they're, they're, the attack is so um, opinionated and personal, it has nothing to do with business. And okay. now we're into a whole new level. So uh, I just kind of want to get your reaction a little bit on just how we've gotten to the point to where they can just, a company can just do that and it's okay. And well, yeah, it's, it's lunacy. I mean, I agree with you completely. Um, uh, but again, it, it's, the, it's the hypocrisy of it all. If, if, uh, North face, um, was not using oil and gas to distribute their products, to manufacture their products, um, and to innovate with petroleum products, um, you know, this, this, this would not have resonated with anyone. Uh, they would have moved on. But the fact that, that you're having uh, a, a CEO in Houston be compared to those types of sin tax industries and um, uh, actively discouraged from purchasing a product um, is it, just crazy. Um, the, Adam Anderson, the Innovex CEO, uh, really drew on a number of the uh, writings of Alex Epstein and the moral case for fossil fuels. And and that's really, we're just missing that education component that there is so much of the world right now that is looking to affordable, abundant, reliable energy. And we produce it here in the United States. We've thankfully since 2015, enabled it to be exported overseas. We're seeing a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gases, but also other types of emissions because natural gas is supplanting dirtier fuels. And I'm not just talking about coal. I'm talking about folks that are burning wood and cow dung. I mean, the the, the amount of uh, diseases that will be reduced from burning clean natural gas as opposed to burning wood inside homes is unbelievable. Uh, not to mention that, that you're bringing countries out of poverty by giving them the tools to bring water to the surface, to clean water uh, and distribute it effectively is is incredible and, and something that should be celebrated, something that should be supported. You can still be uh, an environmentalist and, and want to see a cleaner environment, but, but then you really need to look to where your clean fuels. It, it's natural gas. Uh, it, it's nuclear. It's not uh, uh, this whole-scale move to renewables. And, and uh, there's a great um, think tank here in Austin, uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation, but um, Jason Isaac um, who does a lot of work on energy, he's got this, this, this great point where he says we are importing pollution and exporting jobs. When we move uh, overseas, when we move our reliance on, on energy sources overseas, that's all we're doing. We're exporting jobs and we're importing pollution. 
rather than taking the opportunity to produce it here, uh, that's that's really what we need to be doing, and and that needs to be celebrated. And so uh, that's why you know the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers added our voice uh, to to the fight on North Face is just to point out, look, this is this is the good. This is what we need to celebrate. This is what we need to honor. This is what we need to point out and educate to folks rather than uh, simply being quiet, moving on to a different, uh, you know, clothing manufacturer. Uh, that's why it was, it was so great to see Adam and Innovex uh, take a stand. So how do we educate the adults? You know, you mentioned about some of the work you guys are uh, doing with, with the school kids and, and that, and I'm, I'm looking at the last 10 years and I'm thinking, boy, we got to educate the adults here. Because 10 years ago, we were having plastic bags or paper bag debates, and Hawaii was coming up with... By the way, Hawaii's got a really good straw program where they don't allow plastic straws. And so I, I, when I was in Hawaii a few years ago, I, I thought, now here is a great example of industry and community working together to solve a problem. Okay. And... I don't know how we went away from plastic bags and straws to just outright banning an industry. I just, it just, it, I don't know how we got to that. So how do we educate the adults here when you've got, apparently you can just turn away business for hypocritical reasons. And, um, you know, you, you're in Austin and we've talked about New York and Boulder and so, some of the other uh, planet of platitude attitudes that seem to be, uh, seem to be winning in the in in the re, in the regulatory arena and um in court for some reason but uh talk to me a little bit about that how how can we connect with some of these adults and get them to understand that you know we've been evolving cleanly as a human species for the last 150 years we've been decarbonizing just fine before the Sierra Club and Greta Thunberg came along which is true we have. That's right. you, you mentioned hay and wood. Well, we used to do uh, whale and uh, coal and a few other things. Now we're down to four hydrocarbons. Pretty good. That's pretty good. Not to mention all those electrical vehicles need that natural gas to charge those batteries. And That's right. Yeah, we don't want to even get into the whole hypocrisy of all the renewable energy stuff. I'm just trying to figure out how we need to re-educate or connect with some of the adults that are out there. Like I said, 10 years ago, it was plastic bags and straws, and now they want to get rid of an industry. So uh, we, 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 we're, the disconnect's getting way too far is what I'm getting at. So um, what do you think? How can, we get to, how, how can we shake these guys a little bit? Turn off their heat? You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is a pocketbook issue, and so uh, when you're not seeing – um, oil and gas uh, uh, at, at very high levels. Um, uh, you know, we have kind of this inverse in, in, in policy. When it's a hundred dollar oil, uh, it, it is drill, baby, drill, and we need you doing everything you can uh, to get the price of oil back down to, to, to manageable levels for our economy. Um, but then, on the in the reverse, when it's at forty five dollars it's why don't you just go away and, and, and that's the that's the challenge we have in educating um, uh, those adults that, that you speak of that, that, that uh, 
had to kind of give it an, an air quote um, of just the importance of oil and gas, both to our economy, uh, but also to everything that we're doing in this country right now from uh, bringing back manufacturing and revitalizing our coastlines. I mean, that that has occurred because of the advances in oil and gas, because of the production in the Dakotas and in the Permian Basin um, to really revitalize parts of our Midwest and to reestablish those trade corridors uh, with our ports. Um, that, that didn't just happen um, by happenstance. Uh, uh, it was because of the investments in oil and gas and in that uh, um, supply chain that is bringing about that innovation. And, you know, really on renewables, they haven't seen costs associated there. Uh, there's been so much on in the way of incentives and in mandates on renewables that it really hasn't percolated down uh, to the end consumer uh, where they're looking at different choices between energy sources. Um, and so they see one industry uh, that is seemingly free, um, but they're paying for it on the back end. From my, from my understanding, there is not one example to show that renewables work. From my understanding, there's not, because they have to be subsidized so much or the end cost goes up because they forgot to carry the one or, you know, there's always a reason. And you take a look at Germany, the country 10 years ago, five years ago, that was touted as the first green country, blah, blah, blah. Well, four, you know, uh, uh, ten, five, five, 10 years later, everybody's energy bill is four times what it was when they started. So they didn't disclose that to anybody and say, hey, we're going to go green. And by the way, your energy bill is going to go up four times what it was. Germany also considers biomass to be green. So the green movement considers cutting down forests to burn them, 100-year-old forests. There was protests in Germany about these 100-year-old forests because they had to go cut them down to get energy to the people. So, right. and last year, yeah. this is no kidding, they had to go turn the coal plants on anyway. So That's the, right, yeah. And, and, and thankfully, we saw California uh, this past year kind of look into that Germany model where they would rely on renewables solely. They would shut down nuclear plants, shut down gas plants, um, and uh, re rely on the sunshine and, and the wind to get them through. Um, but when that failed, when demand increased, and they needed to rely on gas power from other states, it wasn't there uh, because there was high demand in the West. And that's similar to what we're seeing in Germany, where now all of a sudden they are reliant upon gas imports from Russia and from France uh, to, to get through and make it work. Um, and it's really telling that w without that balance, uh, without embracing all energy sources and allowing them to compete against each other, you start to see these big shortfalls and, and um, uh, just some, some outrageous examples of, of brownouts and blackouts. Well, it's just, it's a little bit alarming to me that, you know, we don't really hear much about this. All we hear about is the future is going to be great if we just follow my clean up the act thing, you know, and... and well, even worse, and, you, you saw media kind of flip it on its head and say that 
the reason that we're having brownouts is because of wildfires, and the reason we're having wildfires is because of climate change in the oil and gas industry. And so the only way that we can get rid of the wildfires is if we phase out oil and gas. Uh, that, that was the, the craziness that happened in California, um, that, that, that they don't have power. Now they've got wildfires. They don't have the ability to, to get out uh, and fight those fires because they're, they're not going to utilize fuel to get firefighters out there. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's, it's. Did you ever follow the, did, did you ever read the, uh, God, I can't remember if it was the Atlantic or if it was, it was a reputable uh, publication uh, that was actually a little bit left leaning. And they, they tried to figure out what caused the wildfires like four or five years ago. And it was like a year-long type of a investigation. And what it boiled down to, and I think it's a PMJ, or I forget the, the company. I think PMJ is the East Coast. But there's a West Coast company that basically uh, was mandated to, you know, turn off the oil and gas and everything else and, and only do wind and solar and all these different things. And they had to cut costs and tree trimming costs were one of the first ones to go. And yeah, PG&E. Well, I'm sorry, what was it? PG&E. PG&E, thank you, yeah. Out there. Yes, sir. And so you're, you're, you're somewhat familiar with, with what I'm talking about, I can already tell. And so really at the end of the day, the regulations is what caused those wildfires. And it, people can talk all, all kinds of smoke and mirrors, but if you, if, if you can allow the smoke to clear, they can see very quickly what did cause it. So I don't know if you saw that, that or that, if you... That's right. No, uh, um, Michael Schellenberger has done phenomenal work in, in California to point out uh, not only the, the uh, moves away from, from um, electricity uh, provided by natural gas, but, but also to talk about just the, the, the bad forest management practices out there and how their embrace of this... Um, uh, crazy environmentalism has limited their ability to control fuel sources within forest. And so rather than there be a normal response to wildfires, controlling fuel levels and, and making sure that uh, uh, fire can't spread beyond uh, a given area, uh, they allow folks to build homes within forest, limit their ability to, to uh, control fuel on the ground level. And then we see these just terrible wildfires brought on by piss-poor regulation. And if anybody would like to know the history of the piss-poor regulation, they can read Alton Chase's book of Yellowstone Park. And, I mean, there, there's raw sewage being pumped out of there. We don't even know how to, yeah. we, we don't even know how to manage our national parks which we've got budgets for and people dedicated 100% for, and we think we're going to tell everybody else how to live their life. It's the arrogance, I think, that people get a little bit accosted by. The other part, though, that really I'm going to find interesting over the next year, I I believe this next year is going to be a very... um, It's going to be a lot of fighting, let's put it that way, because... The oil and gas industry is made up of a lot of small businesses, and it's really the last bastion for capitalism at the end of the day because, I mean, you go to the tech industry, Steve Jobs 
And Steve Wozniak, when they built, when they started Apple Computer back in the late 70s, they had to go get Hewlett Packard to say okay. I mean, think about that. Back in the 70s, they had such stringent property, intellectual property laws for part-time employees that Steve Wozniak had to get the okay from Hewlett Packard before he could go start Apple Computer. So the oil and gas industry is about the last bastion for capitalism. The ag industry is so subsidized now. We, I mean, that there's what are there half a dozen beef farmers left and a few dairy farmers. So I mean, that, that's that's pretty much gone gone the, uh, the consolidation way. The oil and gas industry is about the last bastion for capitalism. And when you start talking about small businesses being impacted, the reason a lot of people are oil and gas small business owners are because they're family people. Because that way, one of the family members can stay home and raise the kids, or they have control of their schedule, this and that. Um, do, do you agree with my um, observation about a lot of the oil and gas uh, communities are, are small business owners and, and just kind of that capitalism approach to oil and gas? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, we've got so many examples of uh, CEOs um, that uh, how they started in this business was driving a propane truck or uh, being a tool pusher. I mean, it, and, and phenomenal uh, growth in their careers, um, providing for additional opportunities for their communities uh, to come up in the industry. And it's really a testament to American ingenuity and entrepreneurship. And, and that's why the oil and gas industry here uh, in the United States is, is so unique the world over. And, and we continue to see uh, new businesses being started um, and innovating and, and really changing the trajectory of the entire industry. I mean, I, um, it, it's just a phenomenal story that um, continues to attract people to this industry. Very smart, bright individuals um, that, that want to change the world. I mean, to borrow from the, the University of Texas slogan here, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's fantastic to see um, that's really what gets us excited at the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers is representing these independent operators uh, and, the, and the gifts that they bring to this state and, and to this industry. I love that they enable opportunity and they don't really enable entitlement. Um, they, right. you know, you've got a guy who's, you say, we're going to drive a propane truck or the example I always give is you got some roustabout looking at a vibrating tube every day for 10 years, and he's figured out how to make it vibrate twice as fast and twice as cheap. And all of a sudden, a year later, he's a president of some company, you know, and in Big Spring, Texas, with 12 employees, right. and he's got, you know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, I mean, without a college education, and he's got a $2.5 million company, he's making six figures, he's not, you know, just a, I love that. I absolutely love that. That's that, a phenomenal business. Yeah. Oh, that you can do that. And the part that makes it so special, though, is that the company that this guy was working for, watching that vibrating tube every day, is going to be his first customer. He's not going to try yep. to steal the idea from him or put him out of business. He's going to say, thank you for saving me money and good luck on your risk. We'll be your first customer. I think that's fantastic. But, you know. 
So that's why I get a little bit uh, passionate when it comes to this industry, because I feel like actually the crude life's trying to protect that because that's really y'all what builds communities. Yeah. So I'm sorry. What was that? I said, y'all are doing great work. Yeah. Let me say that a few more times to, to, uh, uh, make it clear that uh, uh, if you're if you're re- recording that um, y'all are doing a great job and we appreciate it. That's a- that's actually why I had to repeat it because I talked over you and I said, "Oh, I got to get that in a promo someday." I've I've got all these like timestamps down that if I ever get some more employees, I might uh, get some promos working and that sort of thing. But we are starting a daily show first of the year uh, because. The industry does need a place to talk, and they need a place to talk every day, and they need a place to feel like they can talk about whatever. And even if we do disagree, that's okay. Hey, because we're all trying to help each other out at the end of the day. And right now, it's really getting old, making you know, spending nine bucks to get you know one dollar. It's just it's getting really old, and uh, some people not only are being optimistic, but they want that optimism to come now. And I think we're going to get there. We're, we're we're almost done with this year, so 2021 is around the around the, the corner. Let's get some optimism talk to end the interview here. So uh, what do you see in forms of uh, good news for 2021, sir? How, how, let's, let's end with some optimism. Uh, Mr. Jason Modulin, like Dodge, but Modulin. That's right. That's right. Uh, we're seeing optimism in the COVID vaccines being rolled out. We're also seeing optimism in some of the progress being made uh, overseas as um, uh, economies are coming back out of lockdown. We're seeing demand uh, increase to levels that they were previous to, to COVID getting here. Uh, so th- those are optimistic uh, points. We're also seeing uh, some optimism at the state level that there continues to be some strong leadership from uh, certainly uh, Republican elected officials here in Texas uh, with Governor Abbott and our legislature uh, prioritizing the oil and gas industry and the men and women in the oil and gas industry. Uh, we're confident that the Texas Railroad Commission will continue to be led by great leaders like Commissioner Christy Craddock and Commissioner Wayne Christian. Um, so we're, we're pleased to, to see a lot of optimism going into 2021, um, and uh, we'll, we'll continue bearing that torch for our members. 